0: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review, where if you've listened before, you know we're just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out that elephant. I'm here today with Amy Buecher. Hi, Amy.
1: Hi, Lou. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Um, for those of you uh, who don't know Amy, uh, first of all, she works at a really amazing agency called MadPow, which you may have heard of, which is, you know, just one of the I want to say unsung, but you know you're not, you guys are not totally unknown. You, you are actually quite well-known, and you're well-known for doing great work, uh, have fantastic people. I've had a few of you on my podcast before and uh, on our conference programs. And uh, you guys also do your own conferences and, and many other things. Uh, Amy is the VP of an interesting area, Behavior Change Design at MadPow. And that is the subject of a book that she recently wrote for Rosenfeld Media and which is coming out very soon, March 3rd, 2020. Are you excited?
1: I am very excited, but it also doesn't quite feel real yet. I've been telling people that when I hold a physical copy for the first time, then I'll really feel excited.
0: You should definitely look forward to that moment, get someone to take some pictures. And uh, you know what? It, it it's a special moment, and I hate to say it, it's going to be more special than your second book. <laughs> so well, really savor ho- it.
1: I hope there's a second book. I'm surprised how much I enjoyed writing the first one.
0: Well, and um, uh, we certainly enjoyed uh, collaborating with you on it. Um, it's so interesting. Uh, you know, here's a here's your book on behavior change design. It's called Engage: Designing for Behavior Change. I should actually drop the title in there. That would be a very smart thing. Um, and you know so here's where I'm lost you you have behavior change uh as something that is has made it into uh, public discourse quite a bit, and we have all the behavioral uh economists uh, flourishing they 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 dominate the podcast airwaves and you know you have uh, uh books like nudge and um, you know why why Haven't we seen the same sort of penetration of design by behavior change thinking? Is there some disconnect? I'd almost assumed it had happened, but you've told me the reason you wrote this book is because there wasn't really a book for designers on the subject. What's going on?
1: Yeah, there's there's a couple of different things. It's like a perfect storm of different dynamics. So one thing that I've seen, you know, I was trained in this very classical academic sense. I went to grad school and got a PhD in psychology. And traditionally people with that degree go into academia or a very like sort of highfalutin research job, not not really an agency or applied research job like the ones that I've done in my career. And so what happens there is you get this disconnect between people who are out there doing behavior change research and like the capital R sense of research and the people who are out there implementing it. And that that is changing now. Um, the academic job market's gotten really tight. There's far fewer positions available in uh, universities than there are people graduating looking for them. And I think by necessity, that's opened some new career paths for people with that classical PhD training, which I'm really, really excited to see. I think that's that's great. I also think that there is some resistance sometimes to behavior change as a design tool because it's not easy. Changing behavior is really hard. And a lot of the behaviors that are worth changing take a lot of time to work on. So my career has mostly been in the health area. And we're looking at things like getting people to change their diets forever. And even changing diet, there's actually a lot of different behaviors bundled into that category. And in order to do it, you really have to understand the context in which people live and the different motivational factors that are at play and the choices they're making all day long. It's a very, very complex system to understand. And then once you design an intervention to affect it, it'll take a long period of time before you really see meaningful results. And that just is a hard thing to bring into the business world where people may be reporting, you know, their revenues on a quarterly basis and they want to very quickly see what's the ROI on this new thing I invested in. It's, it's a, you're talking about different timescales and different complexities. So and,
0: yeah, I mean, you, you have this issue of of short-term mm-hmm. thinking and, and all the problems it creates and uh, but, but just to interject for a moment, I wonder if, Another problem is that designers, when basically we are all involved in one way or another in changing the people in some way who interact with our products and services. But when you frame it as behavior change, at least for me, it almost has an ominous tone. Like, is that something I really want to do? Do I really want to change someone's behavior? That sounds like you're playing with uh, their minds in a way and, and, and... do you, do you sense that? Is it sort of a, a framing that scares people a bit?
1: I don't know if it scares... I actually think it inappropriately excites some people, where they, uh, they like that idea of being able to change people's behaviors for their own objectives. And it's, that's something I really um, kind of proactively come out against in many places in my book, to the point where, you know, through the editing process, I toned that back. <laughs> but I, you know, I, especially early in my career before behavior change design was as much of a thing as it is now, I remember being in meetings where people would say, oh, you know, we, we're going to have all this data on everything people do online. This was when, uh, like, smartphones were just coming out, and we've suddenly had people browsing when they're out at the grocery store, or waiting in line at the bank, or what what have you. And so there's, just this more um, rich data available suddenly. People say, oh, imagine like the ways that we we can affect people's behavior now that we have all of this information on them and we have these smartphone tools in their pockets, which are additional touch points for us to affect them. And that to me, that's not appropriate. That's not the right way to do behavior change. And if I'm going back to the scientific, like leaving the ethical rationale aside, the scientific rationale for that, is if you look at motivational science and the types of motivation that affect people long-term, that really lead to lasting behavior change, those types of motivation are tied to things that people personally value. It's tied to the type of person you think you are or the types of goals that you have that are really personal, like life, lifelong goals, not just a, you know, this is my to-do list for the week. And those things are almost impossible to impose on other people So when we take that view of behavior change design as a manipulation tactic or a way to achieve a business goal, it's not very likely to be effective for the long term. We might be able to do it for a short period of time and use things like rewards and punishments to control some more immediate behaviors. But if you're really looking for a long lasting change in the way people behave, the way to do it is to appeal to what matters to them. And so that means they have to be bought into it. They really have to agree to it.
0: So, what's the the trick there? I mean, is there well, I'm sure <laughs> trick is not the right term to use when we're talking about behavior change. I get that, but uh, you know, and I know you cover this in your book. But what are some of the the kind of um, maybe tools would be a better way to look at it or frame it that uh, you cover in the book to help designers get to that?
1: Yeah. So the 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 motivational quality thing that I mentioned comes from a, a area of research called self determination theory. So that's the D.C. and Ryan motivational theory coming out of the University of Rochester, a lot of people are familiar with it at the most basic level of looking at extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Is it something from outside of you or something more inside of you that's leading you to want to do something? And what that theory of motivation over the years has um, found is that in order to get people to have those more intrinsic forms of motivation, the ones that are based on their values and their goals and their identity you need to support their fundamental or their basic psychological needs. And there are only three of them, so that's sort of nice. There is autonomy, making meaningful choices, competence, feeling like you're learning and growing and you're kind of successful in your interactions with the world, and then relatedness, which is feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, whether it's uh, you know a relationship with other people who are meaningful to you or being part of a community. And so when I go into a design process and I'm thinking, how can I help people associate this behavior pattern that we want them to adopt with that more intrinsic form of motivation, I'm really thinking, how can I create an experience that supports them in having meaningful choices, in feeling a sense of progress, you know, getting that good feedback, or being presented with challenges that help them grow but are also achievable, and then connects them with other people, either for real, you know, in, in terms of relationships and social accountability and those things, or sometimes it's a virtual thing. It's it's helping people either imagine a community of other people going through similar things, or I have a chapter in the book about how technology can be used to simulate that sense of connection.
0: So it's interesting you mentioned those those three facets. It's just to refresh. It's autonomy, competence, and relatedness. That's right. Yeah. So I, it's funny because you, you got me thinking about uh, this app I like got about two or three weeks ago called Strides. And um, I wonder if it illustrates some of your points. So um, uh, I wanted to um, do a little better in terms of exercise and, and reaching goals. And it's, it's basically a platform for doing that. So in the sense of autonomy, it's, a, it's an app that lets you define what your goals are. It gives you a few examples. It shows you how to model them. Maybe you're, you're, you have a weight target uh, maybe you're trying to do a certain number of push-ups a day. Uh, maybe you're trying to use your standing desk a number of times a week, or or, or not smoke for a certain streak, and um, and it also helps you. Like streaks are one of those things that it kind of helps you try to shoot for. You know, good streaks, obviously, and it it's it's also good in the sense of competence, like. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe it's not that good, but it is making me feel like I, I have some control and competently sort of taking over my own behavior change. Like at the same time I got the app, I was experimenting with Pilates and I would taken a, a practice class and I, I was like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just try this app because it seems to be working. I could always do Pilates if, if the app doesn't. Give me a benefit, but I just kind of rather do things on my own. But then I keep finding myself like wanting to share what I'm doing. Like, hey, I I I did, you know, 40 crunches a day for the last week. That's awesome. And who do I tell? I'll tell my wife, and she's like, yeah, you know, who cares? She cares. She really does. But you know, it's not like the top of her list. And so there's not like a kind of way for me to easily share what I'm doing without being obnoxious. And then I think of Strava, which actually is a social tool for tracking, running and biking and things like that. And people will, you know, give you basically the equivalent of a digital high five when you have an accomplishment like that and vice versa. So, yeah, I mean, those are like just a, a couple examples I'm finding that really seem to kind of validate for me, at least a lot of the, the critical stuff you're covering in the book.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Um, so I actually use Strava. And one thing I found I'm recovering from it, it's injury is a grandiose word for it. Um, I run primarily as my form of exercise. And like a lot of runners, I'm currently suffering from a weak butt <laughs> because when you run a lot, um, your body's very smart at conserving energy. And so over time, you recruit just your larger butt muscles in the effort, and your smaller ones basically go weak, and then you have all kinds of discomfort and effects from that. So I'm going to PT and doing some extremely humbling leg lifts and things like that. But in the meantime, I, I am cleared to continue to run. And so I track my runs on Strava, and I've found myself feeling really self-conscious because right now, I'm, I'm really slow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it hurts. And... I keep meaning to turn off the social sharing component for, you know, just for now so that I don't have to tell everybody that I'm not running as fast as I'm used to and I keep forgetting and the way I realize I forgot is I get an email saying that someone else gave me the thumbs up for my recent run and then I'm like, "Oh, I messed up, I should have hidden that." So I started adding little comments to say, you know, leg is not feeling great yet today. Um trying to justify the way that I'm running, it's it's just a funny dynamic. Well, like it's I've... the
0: double-edged sword of relatedness. Um, and uh, you know, as an aside, it's just so funny you 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 talk about the runner's butt because I this morning happened to listen to a I don't know a some of the behavioral economics podcasts which got into um, the butt <laughs> and described running, uh, which I'm a runner too, and, and it described running as uh, you know very dependent on the butt. The butt is there to help you run and to enable, and and they say that running is essentially, for a biped, is a controlled fall forward, and the butt muscles are required to control that fall. Uh, So there, we we started off talking about uh, designing for behavior change, and we've reduced ourselves to a discussion of the gluteus maximus. Um, Why don't we get back to your book? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Well, so... You um, you've done something that's really important, and that is taking an academic area um, and and essentially um, translating it in a way that's accessible and actionable to practitioners. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do. What? How did when when you were sort of deciding what to leave in? and what to leave out for the practitioner and and how to what language or or vocabulary to use to to make it more accessible to not talk about glutei maximi but talk about butts for example how, how did you do that was that a really difficult challenge as an author
1: parts of it were difficult um, some of it came just out of all of my training and experience even uh, you know when i was earning my phd one of the ways that you fund your education is by teaching undergraduate courses, being a graduate assistant. And that practice right away forces you to take the information you're learning and put it in terms that are appropriate for someone who's just starting out. So from the very beginning, it's been a part of my practice to do a little bit of translation for audiences that are less expert than, than I am. And it's certainly important in my role as a consultant because I go to talk to a client and oftentimes the client audiences I speak to are really diverse in their own professional experiences. So I may be talking to people who are coming out of IT and don't have any UX research experience at all. Like they're, they're completely naive to that entire area of practice. And so it's important that I'm able to describe what we do and why we do it in a way that makes sense to them. So there's there's sort of this um, you know long time professional practice that has taught me at least some of the ways in which people expect to be communicated with and some of the terminology that might resonate with them better than the technical terminology. But then, um, you know, on top of that, I think some of it was definitely the editing process was really helpful. I um, you know Marta is a fantastic editor and she was very good about very bluntly telling me sometimes that I had gone way down a rabbit hole that wasn't going to be of interest to a general readership or, you know, something wasn't written in a way that was um, as easy to comprehend as I'd wanted it to be. So that was helpful. I also had this interesting dynamic with the technical review process where you send your manuscript to people who are experts to make sure that the information you've included is correct and that you haven't omitted anything really important. And I, I made a few judgment calls when I got that feedback that you know people would point out you you did you know skip this whole area, and I made a few judgment calls that yeah I think that's okay to skip because if I included it I think I would be confusing things more than clarifying them for mm-hmm. the general readership, and I, I will say that was a hard thing to do just emotionally because I I recruited technical reviewers that I really respect and um, you know I I think their feedback was right and one sense. And so it was, it was difficult to step up and say no to some of it. But I, I had in the front of my head, I, I could just picture people, you know, at, a, at an event or something, raising their hand and saying, well, you said this, but then you also said this. And what, what did you really mean? And I don't think ultimately it's in the service of anybody if you provide so much information that you make it harder to understand.
0: Well, you know, like any other product, uh, a book is a difficult thing to design. And, uh, there are a lot of features you could cram in and, uh, the, 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 in the service of the, the user, you really do have to leave a lot of things out and it's, it's painful. Um, I wanted to jump back though and talk about your consulting work. Now, do you find that when you introduce yourself or you're introduced as a VP of behavior change design to a client that, um, you um find those, sometimes those clients are asking you to do things that you don't think are ethical, like to do manipulative uh, behavior change?
1: Sometimes, sometimes. I will say one of the reasons I wanted to work at MadPow, and I, I was a longtime MadPow fan. I actually attended, you mentioned that we host a conference every year, Health Experience Design. And I attended the very first one because I had just moved back to Boston from living in Michigan for a long time, and I was working remotely, and I wanted a local professional community, and I really admired what I saw MadPow doing. And one of the things that I specifically admired is the company has an explicit commitment to doing ethical work. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of our taglines is we do projects that are good for people and good for business. And since since I've been here, I've been here about four years now, I have been in a a handful of situations, a small handful of situations where we have seen RFPs or had a a potential client reach out. And we've decided that that's not a project we want to pursue because it it does feel unethical. It feels like we're manipulating people or, you know, we're really just trying to sell a product without it necessarily being the best thing for the, the consumer or the patient. So that means a lot to me. And it also means that those sorts of requests are cut way down because people know from the outset that MadPow doesn't that type of work so that that helps but i think what happens more often is we'll have a project where the ultimate goal is is a good one it's admirable but then there are sort of these sub goals that clients will try to sneak in that are a little bit more of that manipulation piece and it might be something as simple as um, you know collecting people's email addresses for marketing lists Mm -hmm. in ways that aren't quite as upfront. Um, and, and, you know, in those, those cases, you just sort of have to speak up and explain why you won't do that. I actually do find it helpful to fall back a little bit on my professional role. And maybe I do that because not I don't encounter a lot of other people with PhDs in psychology in my day-to-day life besides my friends and, you know, the people that I was trained with. And so I take advantage a little bit of people's not knowing exactly what that entails, and I, I I will say things like you know my professional training prohibits me from doing that, and it's a it's a little bit of bull, but um, it, there's a little bit of truth to it too. I mean, I was trained with a, a certain code of ethics. So,
0: well, they you know the maybe the um, the the somewhat ignorant folks out there uh, are confusing uh, psychology and psychiatry, and they they assume you've taken the hypocritic oath and. Uh, You can play that. Um, Now, just another question about um, how your work plays out in in the workplace. Um, Do you find that uh, behavior change design becomes, um, like a number of other things, uh, something of a common platform or or way to pull people together uh, in new ways uh, on teams? In other words, just like Having, let's say, a research repository may bring people together that aren't working together very well without that sort of that common platform. Or there's a number of things like that. And I'm wondering if behavior change, are you finding that that is something of a unifying thread for teams?
1: Um, In my experience, it can be, and it can also be a dividing thing sometimes, Hmm. because I think, well, I'll focus on the unifying, on the positive One of the things I love about behavior change design is that it actually isn't necessarily associated with one specific skill set. So you could be a content strategist and be a behavior change designer or a visual designer, interaction designer, researcher, whatever role. I mean, I've seen product managers. I actually played a product manager role myself in a previous job, but I was still very much a behavior change specialist. And I think in the sense that the lenses we use, the perspectives we use, and some of the methods we use are applicable to these different functional areas, it is a unifier. We can all take pieces of the discipline and apply them to our own work so that we have that in common in the way that we're approaching a problem.
0: Um, One more question about uh, behavior change and about your book, Engage, Designing for Behavior Change. What's like you know bottom line it what's the like the, the the one two or three things you think a potential reader ought to know
1: well one thing is i i think so similar to what i just said about how behavior change design can be done by anyone in any functional role the other piece of that that i think is important for potential readers is you can learn how to do this there are pieces of behavior change design i'm confident that you can incorporate into your own practice right away And I'm hopeful there will be other pieces that you look at and you say, I'd really like to learn to do that well, and there are ways that you can learn that and gain those skill sets. So, you know, I want this to feel like an approachable, doable thing that people can incorporate into their work, no matter what role they play. Um, I will also say that one thing I think is really important is an understanding that Although behavior change design can help improve the outcomes of your product, it can get more people to do the things that you'd like them to do because you're designing the product in a way that supports that and makes it appealing. There will always be people who don't want to do it. And I think knowing that right off the bat, you'll never get 100%. And being respectful of the fact that there will be some people who just don't want to do it is really, really important. And I think it's also a really important thing when you think over the long term because you'll have some people who don't want to do you know they don't want to experience your app now or they don't want to enroll in your program now but they might be interested in the future if you give them a positive experience now if you say all right that's great sorry we're not for you now but come back later they might actually come back as opposed to if you make the hard sell or you try to use the force tactics that's where you lose people forever and so I, I really want to encourage this acceptance that it's okay not to win over everybody on the first go-around and to take the longer view.
0: Well, well you've won me over. Well, you did <laughs> when you wrote the proposal, to be honest, but um, well, we're talking with Amy Bucher, uh, author of uh, the forthcoming Rosenfield Media book, uh, Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. Uh, Amy's a mad Pow, VP of Behavior Change Design. Uh, you can learn more about her at Buker, E-R-ph-d.com or on Twitter. She's uh, Amy AmyBPhD. Uh, we'll be right back with Amy in just a moment. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for and that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com slash communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions, and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings, and uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists from each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when these scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com/communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. We're back with Amy Bucher, author of Engage, Designing for Behavior Change. Amy, for a Postscript, I'd like to get a sense of just something you think people should know about. What's a gift for our listeners that you have in mind?
1: So I want to encourage people, if you like it, I guess. I don't want to force anyone to feel like this is homework, but one of my great pleasures in life is reading fiction. I love a good novel. I love it to not particularly be work-related. But what I I think is really valuable for me as a professional is that reading fiction is a way to gain empathy because you're introduced to characters that you might not otherwise ever encounter anywhere in life. And in the practice of reading, reading their stories, you put yourselves in their shoes and you're able to better imagine how people who are different from yourself might react, might experience things. So I I read primarily because I enjoy it, but I also get this great benefit where I think I've become a better behavior change designer because I've been exposed to so many more perspectives. Uh, And I I do particularly like thrillers, horror stories, sort of that genre of novel. And I I just finished one last night that I thought was really well done in terms of that empathy building. It's called um, Whisper Network and it's by Chandler Baker and it follows four women who work together in a large corporation. But it was inspired by that news story from a few years ago. There was a, a viral list that went around called Shitty Media Men. And it was basically women in the media industry who put together a spreadsheet of men who had misbehaved. And it was a way to warn each other, to sort of uh, you know develop a sisterhood and put the word out that you might want to avoid being alone in a room with this guy or you might not want to sign the contract that puts you in contact with this guy. And so what I really enjoyed about this book is that it took this, you know, very relatable problem, but in its four female characters developed different perspectives, different reactions, different rationales for how they behaved the way they did. And I, I feel like I walked away with a much more nuanced understanding of how people might react to that kind of situation. So that was whisper network. And I, I thought it was as far as my, you know, guilty pleasure, thriller readings go, it was a good
0: one. Well, that's great. Um, and, uh, one of these days, um, Uh, I'll I'll do a podcast just on Kurt Vonnegut's fiction, um, which uh, I think has also a lot to teach people about user experience design uh, and about humanism in general. Well, Amy Buecher, thank you so much for joining us today. Amy Buecher, who is basically changing uh, um, behavior of designers in terms of their understanding of behavior design change. There, that's very meta. Thanks for joining us today, Amy. Really, really appreciated having you.
1: Thanks.
0: This was fun. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And Please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at RosenfeldReview.com.